Okay, welcome to another edition of the Cultural Class Podcast, the podcast where we get to interact with people from different backgrounds and get to learn about other cultures. Uh, my name is Nosa Iyare, and welcome to another episode. As usual, we have a different guest this week. We have Nine Johnson, all the way from Los Angeles. How's it going, Nine? Doing good, doing good. What's going on, y'all? Right, right. How's your week been so far? The week has been chill. Um... A little bit of work, a little bit of leisure, weather just got good. So, yeah, California life, kind of. It's that balance, right? Yeah. Great. Yeah. At least let's give thanks for health and uh, life, you know? Yeah, exactly. I mean, when you think about it, like when I say California life, the worst weather we've had so far has been like maybe 56 degrees. <laughs> That's the worst. <laughs> That's the worst. <laughs> Oh, God, that's a good day. <laughs> yeah, we celebrate rain when we get it. You know what I'm saying? It's like it yeah. doesn't rain that often out here. So well, apparently a lot of people are moving out of California, right? People are moving to Texas, yeah. Florida, especially Arizona. with COVID. A lot of people are just moving out yeah, of state. Uh, Texas, Arizona and Las Vegas primarily and Oregon and Washington a little bit. But, you know, it's the the. Well, you, the the social and political climate going north isn't that healthy, you know, like mm-hmm. Oregon. Tell me you about know, it. So, yeah, not that many people move in that in that direction, but yeah, people are moving out of here because the um, the taxes, the business taxes, you know, just gentrification, the cost of living. It's like it's nice. California is nice just across the board, but at the same time, when you want to raise a family and you're thinking about longevity, you know, just the, the the way that our government spends our tax dollars mm. is so ambiguous, you know, and our taxes are so high. When you're surrounded by, I think Vegas has no, like either low taxes. business taxes, mm-hmm. like their, their state taxes are super low. Air, uh, Texas, their state taxes are super low. I'm not really sure about Arizona, but I know it's nowhere near as bad as it is in California. So, you know. And people want, like you said, people want to see the infrastructure. Like, okay, what am I paying for? Like the issue exactly. of homelessness, you know, infrastructure and different things that like, people are like not getting it. So yeah, a lot of people are just moving out. But uh, yeah. anyway, um, look forward to talking to you today. So Nine is a performance anxiety coach. You're, you're a mental health advocate. You're, you're an artist. You're a spiritual life counselor. Um, yep. Yeah, you're just the all-around general, I guess, California creative, if I can use that word. And let, let me get into your background a little bit. Did you grow up in? So I have two questions. Is Nine your actually real name? Like that's such a that's such a kick-ass name. Like Nine Johnson. That's that's pretty cool. I can brand that like a million and one ways. Is Nine your your legal first name? And did you grow up in California? I grew up in California. I was born in Oakland, California, and I grew up in the San Francisco Bay Area. And Nine is not my legal uh, first name. My actual legal first name is Jason. So it's Jason Johnson. But I'm about to get it legally changed to Nine. And so Nine was was more of a, a spiritual life choice. I'm not sure, like, if you're into spirituality, uh, you've probably heard of people reaching a certain point on their spiritual journey where they're ready to let go of their ego and kind of redefine themselves based off of their, you know, personal truth. And so, and usually, like in the, the, I guess you could say, spiritual pop culture or spiritual culture, um, people in the Western world 
would choose an Indian name like uh, Paramahansa Yogananda or uh, Yogi Bhajan or, you know, just like, I guess it's, um, it's something that was learned from Indian gurus and stuff like that. But from my perspective, it was more like, I just, I didn't feel authentic choosing another name, another common name. I didn't feel authentic choosing a name from another culture, despite the fact that Jason is a Greek name that means healer. Um, so in the back of my mind, I just heard this voice that said, just pick a number. And wow. so, so well, why my nine, birthday is why on not... September. Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Yeah. You're just about to answer that question. My birthday is on September 9th. I've told this story a lot of times. And so my birthday is on September 9th, 1981. And so nines have been in my life from the beginning. And so I just chose nine. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. So growing up in Oakland, you were born in 1981. I mean, it's safe to say you came up in the 80s, the early yeah. 90s. What was it like for you? Because um, in as much as I can't paint like LA with a broad brush, but you hear all the stories about, you know, Shugnai and some a aspects of LA, like growing up, like, well, you know, different things like that. Did you get to experience that as a kid? Like that culture, like where you, did you have any run-ins with like, uh, gang life or things like that? Like, how was that like for you? Well, Oakland is about six hours away from Los Angeles. So I moved to Los Angeles in 2003, but, and I was born in Oakland, but raised in a small island town called Alameda. And it's a military island because there really are no islands in the Bay Area, like in the San Francisco Bay Area. Um, but Alameda was a part of Oakland and the military dug a big trench and separated it from Oakland. And so it's actually a legit island. And the Navy um, had their bases there. My dad was in the Navy. And so the ships would come in and then there was a Coast Guard, like kind of on the side of the island. We had five bridges, well, we had five bridges, two tunnels, and it was just like a legitimate, like you could say white suburb on an island surrounded by Oakland. And yeah, it was weird. And that's why I talk the way that I talk. Like some people will say that I have like a really like white California accent and it's because I grew up on a naval base. But to answer your question, being surrounded by Oakland, you know, we still experienced some of, you know, the, um, I guess you could say gang culture but nothing in comparison to Los Angeles, nothing in comparison to Compton, Watts, like like the stuff that you see on TV is just like so far removed from anything that I experienced. Like the people who, like there was a chapter of the Crips in Alameda, but it was more like suburban, you know. Suburban um, Crips, so that's funny. Yeah, suburban, <laughs> like ethnic. I'd say ethnic kids, so like Filipino kids, black kids, Mexican kids, maybe like one white kid, all of them kind of trying to find their their place in the underdeveloped side of Alameda, you know, because every city has like their high, like high end, wealthier side. And then on the on the low end, you know, you got public housing. And so in the public housing area, you still get bullied. You know what I'm saying? You People still fuck with you. And so they attempted to form, you know, a chapter of the Crips. But at the same time, it's just like, it's a suburb. So, you know what I'm saying? If they actually experienced any type type of like gang lifestyle or anything, you know, they, they'd get 
basically they would get beat, beat right. down. You know right. what I'm saying? So it's just like kids trying to play tough. Right. Because it only it only lasted like a year or two. Like Alameda's like Al, because Alameda is an island and a military island, you had the MPs, military police, and then you had the Alameda police force. And it's an island. So you can't really do dumb shit and get away when all they have to do is lift the bridges and close the tunnels and it's a wrap. Got it. You know. And so, you know, it didn't last very long. But then, you know, I, I would say, like some of my friends would say, we still experienced a, a tough, tough lifestyle. But I would say we are very fortunate to have not experienced what people experience in Los Angeles and like West Oakland, East Oakland. You know, you go out there and you could stop any average guy and one of his friends got shot. Maybe a family member, you know, got shot. I have cousins that are um, have been falsely imprisoned just based off of you know the police needing someone to blame for something. They find him, arrest him, and then he he's on bail, so he's not even accused, and that he's happens. and he waits yeah a lot. He waits eight years for a trial, and then at the seventh year, they're like basically if you were convicted, you know your your uh, sentence would have been probably around eleven years. And so if you plead guilty now, you only have like three years to go. And so around like seventh, eighth year, they convince him to just tell everyone that he did it. You know what I'm saying? You're sitting on, you're, you're basically not proven guilty, sitting in jail for seven years. Yep. Waiting that for something about to right. happen. You know what I'm saying? And so then they convince him to plead guilty. He does, thinking that he only has three years now that he has an actual sentence. Nope. Yeah, I mean, it's crazy. I mean, being an immigrant who's been living in the U.S. for less than five years now, it's just crazy to see, like, we have our own issues with the police where I'm from, you know, in Nigeria, but it's just crazy to see the way the police operates here. And, you know, today, I guess, today is uh, April 20th, so Derek Chauvin just got convicted, like, a few hours ago, I guess, yeah. for the issue that happened in Minnesota. But we're still in this constant struggle, you know, with with the police being, you know, people of color. And some people might argue that society, you know, their eyes are getting open, but it's not, their, their eyes are not getting open fast enough, in my opinion. And I've just been living yeah. here for less than five years. But let's talk about some of maybe not your actual struggles, but maybe struggles that I perceive you may have had. Like, is it okay to say that you were always somewhat torn? I mean, you grew up a military brat, but at the same time, you lived in uh, a, a suburb and there was, you know, gang activity going on on the other side of the coast. I watched some of your past interviews and you know you said you grew up reading comic books and cartoons but at point you actually got into sport so have you always like been struggling to balance like the artsy side with the <laughs> i don't know what do i call it the what 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 people expect to be like uh, uh an alpha male and artsy side growing up in california growing up military like how was that like like did your father try to pull you one way your mom one way the society try to pull you one way and you know well what was that like? It was, it was the only word that I could, like the first word that comes to mind is just crazy because it's like, my dad is in the military, so he's never home. Well, he's in the Navy, you know, so they, they go out on a ship. They come back maybe two years later. Right. And so my dad was in the Vietnam war. And so it's, 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 you know, when you're in the Navy, you're, mom or dad at some point has to go overseas, but then the other parent still has to work. And so all the, the Navy kids were latchkey kids, which is basically your parent will put a key around your neck. And so you go to school and then you walk home and the school is always on the base. What was the key for? 
Well, it's your house key. Oh, got it. Yeah, and so that's why they call it latch key. It's just like so you don't lose it. You know where it is. It's a necklace. And so you have all these all these kids. Like I think I was like six six years old, walking to like to and from school by myself. You know, from six to shit throughout high school. You know, and so it's just like that's something that you do. And so I didn't really have a father figure. Because a lot of the the uh, Navy guys that went over to Vietnam, you know, they had the opium and bop, bop, bop. So, you know, dad will go out, come back, you know, just hardcore alcoholic. Go out, come back, smoking weed. Go out, come back, messing with the opium, gets hooked on crack. You know what I'm saying? And so it's it's the, the stereotypical um, African-American story where my parents get, get divorced when I'm eight years old. Dad comes back hooked on crack, and he's just, you know stealing shit, you know, doing whatever he can to get the next fix. Uh, but to make that a long story short, he did get clean and, you know, it has his own house and, you know, the, the VA is taking care of him and all is good now. And so I'm one of the fortunate few who has, you know, who still has their father, but I can, I don't even have enough fingers to count how many of my friend's fathers, you know, got addicted to whatever and never came. And so with that experience, Mom's always at work, so there really was no opportunity for me to develop any sense of cultural awareness, and so I never really fit in with anybody. Mm. Like, I fit in with, you know, the white kids, the Filipino kids, the Asian kids, the black kids, like, as friends, but culturally, you know, there was really no culture. And so it was just like this, this merger of being able to fit in with everybody, but not really fit in anywhere. And so even even now in Los Angeles, there's a, a, a thriving African community, like, you know, people from, you know, the diaspora and I'll go. But the moment they ask me where I'm from, you know, it's it, they're not asking me, where am I from in the United States? They're asking me, where am I from in Africa? And it, as far as I know, my gene, my genealogy is from Ghana. But that's only because once I moved out here, people from Ghana would just come up to me and be like, you know, where are you from? Where are you from? Because like I see you and I know so many people that look just like you, like you're you have a popular face. And so it's just like over and over and over and over and over. So I'm just assuming that my family's from Ghana, but I don't know. And so it's I would say that it's a gift and a curse because I can go anywhere and fit in with any group of people, you know, generally. But once people start getting specific, you know what I'm saying, I'm I'm a good listener, you know. <laughs> <laughs> right. I mean, I, I understand the struggles, man. I understand the struggles. I'm I'm Nigerian, but you know, I think it's safe to say I'm not the typical Nigerian. So like I understand yeah. what it is like where you know you interact with a lot of people, but sometimes you just feel different. Like you're in this constant quest to find your tribe, like yeah. like-minded people who, who who think alike, who you can feel comfortable and safe with. And sometimes that tribe is not always what society expects. It might be, oh no, these are you know, they give them all sort of names and things, and you know, some of them are ostracized, and not a lot of people know how to deal with it. Like, how did you deal with it? Like, what did you do to kind of like take your mind off things that were going on with your father or maybe your struggles with you know identifying with with you know community and things like that how did you get through it like particularly in high school i just collected friends like one of my biggest anxieties was just um i'm not sure about in the rest of the world but in the african-american community i assume this is because of slavery 
But the way that discipline is taught is through spanking, you know, beating and stuff like that. And so by the age I was like maybe seven, six, by the age by the age of six, I've been beat by my mother, beat by my father, and beat by my brother. And my brother is maybe four, four and a half years older than me. And so that made me a very sensitive kid, you know what I'm saying? Because in my mind, the people who I'm supposed to be the safest with all have hit me already. Nobody else in the world, just my family. And so because of that, I developed like this, this, this insecurity about myself, this insecurity about my self-worth, you know, this, this insecurity about people and just being safe in the world. And so then I would leave the house looking for friends, looking for like a safe space. And I met my best friend who was like a white, possibly German kid. His name was Brian. And so we just became best friends and we'd read comic books and draw and play video games all day and eat and, and play karate and shit. And so it was just like, that was the life. And so from there, it was like in the back of my subconscious, friendships were safety. Because the more friends I had, the more I didn't have to go home. And so I would just stay the night at friends' houses. You know, I was always spending the night at people's houses. And so that just developed into a, a personal belief that the better of a friend I could become, the more safe and secure I would be. And so I started to kind of abandon my self-development to kind of hyper-focus on what other people want. And I got really good at that. Like, have you seen the, the movie... Um, Oh, it's a Matt Damon movie, uh, maybe The Fabulous Mr. Ripley, something where basically this guy, he can, he's like a, a con artist and he would steal people's identity. And so yeah. rather than being an identity thief, I would basically observe you to the point where I knew everything that you didn't like. I knew everything that you did like, and I would become what it was that you liked. So I could, you know, basically be your friend. And so I had so many friends that I, I was super popular, but then I was also, you know, that saying being lonely in a crowded room, that was me. Isn't that interesting that someone can be super popular, like be the class clown or, you know, the popular person in school, but you still feel lonely, like in a sense, maybe there's a difference between friends and colleagues and acquaintances and all these other things, like, because friend is supposed to truly know you, but some people just know you because, you know, you like, they feel comfortable around you or they like your jokes or whatever, but that doesn't necessarily mean like they took the effort to like know you or something. Did you ever feel betrayed by any of those relationships? Like, oh, you kind of like, went out there to make friends in a way to kind of like compensate from what you might may or may not have been getting from home. But did that disappoint you anytime along the journey saying that, okay, I tried to do this thing, you know, be the popular person, make friends, uh, make sure I'm likable. But still, these people who I, you know, confided in and thought will always be there for me, like a bunch of them ended up disappointing me in some form or fashion. All of them. All of them? All of them. Because it... Wow. It wasn't really them, it was me. Mm. Because the thing with loneliness, loneliness is a manifestation of a person resisting being alone. And so it's like, if you don't want to be by yourself, your subconscious mind will resist. When your subconscious mind resists, that activates your fight, flight, freeze response. And that's the stress response. And so it's almost like anytime we activate our stress response based on the reason that we're interpreting those feelings, we give it a name. And so Mm -hmm. you could say something that insults me 
which would activate my stress response. And so then I will blame you for the feeling that I'm feeling, and I'll call that anger or resentment. Or me and you can become really, really good friends, and then all of a sudden you say, you know, I, I just got this new job, I got to move to Europe, and I really don't have time, you know, to, to communicate with you anymore. And so I got to say, you know, goodbye, and it was nice to meet you. And so that could activate my stress response. And based on that interpretation of the reason that my stress response was activated, I would say that I was lonely or abandoned. And so it's the same stress response but based on our interpretation, it gives it a different feeling or vibration, and it just it feels differently, but it's the same response. And so based on the experiences that I've had with all the friends that I've made, I made them because I felt unaccepted at home, I felt unsafe at home, and I felt abandoned because my dad you know, was always overseas, and then when he came back, he was just gone. And so I had already had certain pain, certain trauma as a child, at home. And so to avoid that pain that was that's already there now, and so it's just bottled up inside me, I left the house to make friends to suppress that pain. And so with all of those friends that I was making, their purpose was to make me not feel lonely, but the loneliness was already there. Interesting. And so over time, it was just like, it was inevitable, whether it was a best friend, a girlfriend, you know, a teacher, a time would come where they couldn't provide me the level of security and acceptance that I needed to continue to suppress what was created at home. And so they all failed me. And then I moved to LA to try to, you know, make up for everything that couldn't be made up for in the Bay Area. And 10 years. Same thing. 10 years, you know, I experienced so many different people, places, things, careers, successes, none of it, none of it worked. And so from 2012 to 2000 and I guess you could say 19, I spent, well, actually 2010 to 2019, I spent all that time healing. And that's where the uh, mental health advocacy, you know, comes from. Uh, I spent a lot of time in therapy and just reading as much as I can about early childhood psychology and childhood trauma. And just, you know, it's interesting, it's, it's interesting, I'm sorry to call you short, no, like no, it's ahead. interesting you say all this because I've never like sat down to think about it, but just hearing it from you, I can tell that this is more popular in a lot of people than we actually think. Mm -hmm. Like you were lo looking for something or you were looking for a solution in these new friends you were making. But like you said, the loneliness was already there. And I can liken it to a lot of romantic relationships that are happening. You know, the girl has a certain level of expectation from the guy or the guy has a certain level of expectation from the girl emotionally, but there's nothing your partner can, can do to feel that void because it's something you have to address and most times it's like stemming from childhood trauma and things like that but not a lot of people like do the research like you did to really know that okay this is what I have to address like what led you well I know what led you to do the research but how did you go about it like practical steps for the benefits of our listeners I want to address some of these things that will heal them fill that void mm -hmm. you know address things that happened in the past so they can have more meaningful relationship more on Honest relationships or not expect so much from mere mortals or humans uh, that are just like them. Yeah, um, I'd say that the mental health part of it, like once I left the Bay Area for college, 
I had so many anxieties that... Sorry, where'd you, where'd you go to college, by the way? Oh, I went to Cal, Cal State Northridge in, okay. um, I guess you could say the San Fernando Valley in Los Angeles. And okay. I studied electronic media management and television production. And the reason why I moved to Los Angeles in the first place was I had so many anxieties that I knew that there was no point in trying to live a normal life because I was afraid of everything. You know, it's like I had all of these friends, but I was always afraid of losing friends. And so I was never really able to develop a sense of self because I was just managing all of these relationships that I kept, you know, developing. And so um, maybe after I graduated from college, I met this girl and she was amazing. She was an actress. She was just, you know, one of the hottest girls I've ever dated before. And she was the type of person, because guys do this and girls do that. But I met her on set of, I think it was a McDonald's commercial, because I was, I was acting. Um, and we hit it off. Everything was just amazing. It was almost like, I remember the director coming up to us and saying that, do you guys know each other? Because the way that you hit it out, like a connection, like yeah. everyone saw it, everyone saw it. At least five people brought it up. It's like, wow, it's like you guys, you guys seem to, it seemed like you guys came together the way that you guys are just like vibing. And it was just so much that the director even saw it and, you know, brought it to our attention. And so I was excited because prior to that, I was abstinent for a year. Why? Um, just spiritual growth, you know, just trying to kind of, learn to love myself more by not, you know, because I live in Los Angeles, which is like the city of the party, the, you know, the Hollywood party, the, the, the club, guest list, bottle service, blah, 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 blah. And so with me, like even in college, UCLA, USC, like we were just in the party. And so around this time, I was like, let me remove myself from that. And the only way to really do that is to just say, I'm not having sex for a year. And so because I did that, I wasn't motivated to go to the gym. I wasn't motivated to go to parties. I wasn't motivated to, you know, shop. It's like all of those motivations became second to self-discovery, journaling, meditation, and all that. So long story short, after that year, I meet her. And in my mind, I'm thinking, I'm being blessed right now. You know, I didn't have sex for a year, and God is like, boom, here you go. This, you know, super hot girl, she's into your spiritual book. She's into all of your, you know, kind of uh, weird uh, left field, you know, spiritual stuff. And she, like, we just vibe. But she was, like, my first real, real lesson in um, healing because she was super into me. But every time we made plans, she would change her schedule on the day of the plan. And plans so to what? To just like hang out, to be together, spend time together kind hang of thing. Hang out. Like the first the first plan, we were gonna go to the park. I was gonna teach her how to meditate. On that day, I'm super excited. You know, it's just like I meet this girl, everything's going to you know, like she's interested in things that my friends aren't even interested in. I'm gonna teach her how to meditate. This is gonna be awesome. On the day, she doesn't uh text me back, she doesn't call me back for like two hours. So two hours late. She says, oh, I'm sorry, something came up. How old were you guys uh, so, at this time? This was after college, right? This is after college. I was like 30, 31. Mm, interesting. Yeah, she was like so, around the same age, plus or minus. Yeah. A couple and, of years. Mm -hmm. Yeah. She, she two hours late, changes plans. So that kind of hurt. But this is this was the cycle. She just kept doing that. She wouldn't was she call running me away from something? What, she was just, she, I don't know. She was so committed to her career. She was so committed to her career that when an opportunity came 
for her to advance herself in her career. Well, is that the cost of our personal disregard. life? Yeah, but wouldn't tell me. She wouldn't communicate. But you're, but you're, but you're in the industry. You should understand, right? Like you being an actor and a model, you should. I, like, I would have understood if she told me, but she would never tell me that her plans changed. And what will and happen so, like when you meet up next? Will she address the issue or just pretend like nothing happened and just keep like, will she, oh, yeah, hi, first, like, no apologies, nothing? For the, for the first two or three months, we never hung out because she kept dropping the plans. And so it got to the point where I had to accept the fact that this is, you know, these are her habits, these are her behaviors. It has nothing to do with me. Just let her go. And I told her, you know, I was like, I, I, res I respect you and, you know, the things that you have to get done. But the fact that you just can't communicate, I can't keep doing this. And so I stopped responding to her text messages. And then once I stopped responding to her, all of a sudden she was available. And Interesting. So this Wait, so was that like a, a side thing situation? What was, what the hell was that? Those three months? No, it was, it was just the way that she navigated her life. Hmm. It was like, she, she was interested. But the issue was her priorities were just so different from mine, you know, to the point where I'm, a, I'm the type of person, I'm, I'm super respectful and mindful of other people's time and the plans that we set up. And so even if I have to, like if I do have an opportunity that is just like, I can't pass this up, I will let you know days in advance, at least hours in advance, so you can make, do something else with that time. But for her, she just wouldn't tell me. And so, right. but to bring it back to your question, that started, that was like the ultimate trigger for me because I felt abandoned. I felt unworthy. I felt like, you know, she didn't care for me. So this brought up all of the stuff that I experienced in, you know, my childhood. And it made me, it made me literally act like a child because I was like, why, why are you doing this? Like, like to make a long story short at the very, very end, I had my first panic attack because every time I was just like, you know what? I can't do this anymore. She would come back in, in force and be like, let's, let's wow. like, really the only times we hung out is when I said, I didn't want to hang out with her anymore. And then she would show up at my house at two o'clock in the morning, you know, just, just <laughs> attentive, attentive as fuck, just ready, ready to talk. And, wow. just like, and so shout out, shout out to men and women, man. right? <laughs> that, that dynamic from the dawn of time. <laughs> Exactly. And I so, don't know if that dynamic from the dawn of time has made the world better or worse. Yeah. And so wow. I had my first panic attack and that started everything for me. And then one of my friends was a child, um, a family psychologist and a child therapist. And we went hiking and she told me that I probably have abandonment anxiety from my experiences mm. with my dad leaving and all of that stuff. And so I was like, abandonment anxiety? What is that? And when I graduated, I worked for Paramount Television Research. So I'm like a research nut. And so all you got to do is just give me one seed and I will turn that into a plant of knowledge. And so I just started studying mental health. I started studying psychology. I started learning as much of early childhood psychology as I can. And then just connecting all of the, the knowledge that I found about, you know, the different mental health challenges with actual um, healing modalities and therapies like meditation and hypnosis and NLP, which is neuro-linguistic programming. And um, in the long run, discovering that like the basic um, principle of healing is catharsis, which is 
releasing whatever emotional blocks or emotional um, suppressed emotional energy or <laughs> suppressed traumatic energy that went unexpressed in childhood. And so it's like those emotions will cycle. And if those wait, emotions wait, 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 wait. are... How, how how do you do that? How do you even know how to release? Like, is there a physical activity? Is it a... Yeah, yeah. And so... Explain. Um, the, the most, I guess you could say, common one is immersion therapy, which immersion is... Immersion therapy. If you have a specific phobia... If you have a, uh, if you had a specific traumatic experience that triggers you and keeps you from being able to um, function, you know, appropriately in social environments or whatever, the therapist will immerse you in the experience, and so either they'll talk you through the original experience that you had to make you experience it to show your body, because all trauma and all um, impulsive triggers are really your body. So they're not you thinking about, oh, I don't want to do this. They're your body sending a signal of fight or flight. Either I'm going to run, mm -hmm. I'm going to freeze, you know, I'm going to do something to protect myself. And usually, and generally, that's why people, you know, uh, usually say, I don't know why I do this. It's because it's not the person deciding or making a decision to do it. It's really the body taking over, you know, and really acting in your subconscious and making you reactive. And when we're reactive, it's based on a program rather than a conscious thought and uh, choice. And so to clear it, the immersive experience is it's basically making you feel the feeling that is controlling the uh, trigger. And you once you a third feel it, party for that or can you do that on your own? You need like a professional. How? Well, because I'm, I'm trying to get as I, many I practical it. steps as, as possible here. Oh, there's, there's so many, but I experienced it first with a therapist. And then from there, I'm, you know, I'm a hands-on type of person. And so it's like, if I can't afford to keep going back to you, let me at least see if I could do it on my own. You know what I'm saying? And if it, if it works, it works. If it doesn't, it doesn't. And it does, it does work. And so I started to um, put myself in positions to face my fears. And that's where facing your fears comes from. It's that back in the day, at some point, um, therapists, psychologists, people that study psychologists, they know, they knew, like way, way before the 1900s, they knew that catharsis was a possibility and the, the most efficient and least, uh, or the easiest way to do it is to re-experience the thing that caused you the trauma or the behavior in the first place. And so that's why I became an actor because I grew up with learning disabilities. I grew up with, you know, social anxieties and all of the, all, I had so many anxieties. Acting would force me to learn how to read in front of people and grow comfortable with reading in front of people and experience those anxieties. It would force me to share the things about myself that I'm afraid of. It would force me to, you know, be honest and, um, particularly as a guy, and express my feelings in front of women, in front of, you know, people that are older than me, in front of people that are younger than me. And so my, um, generally, acting is actually a therapeutic um, modality. And so, you know, uh, um, some people use acting as a way to get, uh, I guess you could say, as a, a means of self-discovery and mm -hmm. a means of immersing themselves in, you know, it's like role-playing as well. You know, so say um, you have a fear of speaking in front of, you know, large crowds. That's why people go to things like, uh, what 
is it? What is it called? Toastmasters. And Toastmasters is, is just a, a group of people. They have them all over the United States where um, either you work in businesses and you want to get better at public speaking. And so you grow up, you join a Toastmasters group and it's people who just put together speeches and then they give speeches in front of each other. And then they, they give um, constructive criticism, criticism and they just work mm -hmm. the job. You know what I'm saying? That's immersive, you know, as well. And so it's just, it's feeling the anxiety and giving the anxiety its time in the light of your consciousness. Is and that, at the end of the day... Is that a practical step in some instances? Because some instances, like, people have so much childhood th trauma. Like, you're t talking about some people have, like, sexual trauma, you know, things that they just mm -hmm. block for, like, years and years. And if they were to face those demons or have that immersive experience, like, it might leave them incapacitated where they won't be able to do their jobs. They might just, might lead to a, a bout of this depression where they'll be indoors for, like, three months. So maybe a lot of people have avoiding that because they know if they were to face it, then it will affect other parts of their life. They'll get fired. They'll do all these things just because they want to address childhood issues. Like, are there practical ways to chip away at it, like, bit by bit? Like, I know I want to address things that happened in my childhood, but I'm afraid that if I go all out and do it all at once, like, for the next six months, I'm just going to be, you know, whatever. And I need an income. I need, like, to still have these experiences, even if they're so superficial experiences with coworkers and, you know, colleagues, and just still live my life, but still knowing that's important to address those tra childhood traumas. So what should someone do in that position where he or she feels so afraid to face that because they know that the consequence is going to, going to be so great. Like, wh what do you do in that situation? I would say that's when you, you know, um, seek the help of a therapist because with, you know, therapists, they're basically like guide. You know, like say you're going to climb Everest. Yeah, that's a very dangerous climb. And so you need a Sherpa to guide you, show you where the, uh, show you the way, because even with, you know, climbing something like Everest, they do it in little chunks and then they set yeah. up a base camp and then they rest and they recuperate. And so with that therapy, it's the same thing. Um, immersion is just like, it's the first step. But there's, there's other, you know, um, therapeutic modalities as well, like NLP, which you you work with a practitioner and then they use like specific um, visualization techniques that kind of walk you through, you know, re-experiencing with it, re-experiencing your trauma through a, a visual, you know, a, a, you could say using your imagination kind of like a virtual reality experience where you can re-experience certain things in pieces, in chunks, and you can create a safe space where you could re-experience those things and uh, abort if necessary, rather than just like going head first into the whole memory and potentially re-traumatizing yourself. But for me, I've always been the type of person who um, first I'll try the professional. And if the professional either can't help me or it's too costly, you know, I'm just like, well, I got to do this because this is the rest of my life. And I had so many, you know, anxieties and so many fears. I was just like, you know, fuck it. I'm just going to go all in and um, see what happens. And so for me, it was easier for me to just jump in head first and experience what I experienced and then manage it because I've always been pretty good at just, you know, self-management and handling the stuff that I went through because I went through a lot. 
like you were talking about um, specific childhood traumas with like molestation and stuff like that. I also, I, I experienced some stuff like that in my family. And for me, it was limiting my social life and my sex life because there was, there were, I just had specific fears around my sexuality. I had specific fears around me as a male being threat to women. And so I would be in a situation where it was all good, consent was there, but in the back of my mind, I wasn't sure if I was doing a bad thing or not. Because for me, I was taken advantage of as a kid. And so I personally had to work through that. And I can speak from experience that when you reaccess those memories, they hit you like a ton of brick because a lot yep. of the, the sensory information and like for a lot of people, even the emotion is repressed. And so you might right. have the memory, but just think, oh, that was that game that I played, you know, back then with su such and such. But once you reaccess the full memory, it's like you get all of the thoughts that you thought after it was done. You get all of the feelings that you felt after How you felt. Done. And they all just like hit you like somebody just turned on a fire hose and just like bang. And so yes, in the in, in a situation like that where, you know, there's another person that's the cause of certain trauma, like sometimes, maybe not all the time, I'm not an expert at this, because um, I always feel like sometimes you have to step up, not step to the person, but kind of like deal with it with the person, either in the sense of, you know, telling the person, hey, you know, this thing you did to me when I was a kid or whatever, like, this is how I felt. And I know you might not have realized that, but I'm going through healing and I forgive you. Or, you know, maybe we have to go to group counseling together, but there might be need to interact. Do you think that's always the case? Or you think it's possible to just deal with your own side of the trauma without, I don't want to say confront, but without like reaching out to the cause of the issue, whether that's, you know, your mom, your dad, or some cousin or whatever that, that, you know, engage in some act that they might not have known was hurting you in that sense, but mm. is necessarily to your healing that what do you think can be done? Is it one or the other or? Well, what? if you're, if you're fortunate, you have that person around and that person is, you know, either doing their work or, you know, mentally stable enough to receive what you have to say to them and, you know, help you, you know, work through it by holding space and listening to the things that you have to say. But nine times out of 10, that's not the case. You don't need that person around because honestly, your whole experience with the trauma is personal. You know, it's almost like, say, you were stung by a bee and that bee you know, say may, made you fall and you hit your head and you lost your sense of hearing. And because you lost your sense of hearing, that just like ruined your life. And that was a major traumatic experience for you because now you can no longer hear. And say you were a singer. And so you just grew up bitter because this thing happened and it was all because of a bee. Well, what do you do? Because you can't speak to the bee. You know, because you just got stung, you you tripped. It was a, you know, you could say it was an accident. Some, some people try to blame God in, in that instance or yeah. something. They and look people, for something to... People will plug in something to kind of justify the way that they feel. But at the end of the mm -hmm. day, the healing process is your perception of the memory or your willingness or ability to re-experience the repressed emotion or the, I call it the repressed emotional memory. And so if you're afraid of experiencing it, 
well, then you're just going to keep cycling because that emotional memory is going to keep informing specific thoughts and specific behaviors because people think that just because something is repressed and you can't feel it and connect it to a specific mem like sensual memory, that it's not there. But it's always there and it's always influencing your behaviors and your beliefs in the background. And so just based off of your experience with the circumstances that happened, that's what needs to be healed. The person who did it, you know, only God knows what happened to them as a child to make them the type of person to do the thing that they did. You know what I'm it's saying? It's a cycle. Yeah. And so sometimes, like for instance, for me, basically, um, it was my brother who molested me. And the reason why he did it is because he was molested and he was taught a game that he kind of used as in our community because we were latchkey kids and in a military environment, all you need is one, you know, one adult that's taking advantage of maybe their nephew who happens to be friends with the rest of the kids in the community. And then that kid goes out and teaches the game or that kid brings kids to, you know, that guy's house. And then he teaches that game to all of them. And now you have five other kids going out doing that with their little brothers and sisters and cousins and nieces. And that's just how it happened, you know? And so, for me, it was just, you know, he learned the game. And the reason why I know that he learned the game is because the kid who was actually spreading the game got me, and I think I was probably like seven or eight, and got a bunch of the kids from the playground and lined us up and tried to get us to play that game. And so my first experience with the game, I'm standing in line, like watching it, and it's like, this doesn't look fun. Like, it just didn't make sense to me. And so I was like, I'm going back to the swings. And so I bounced. And so I dodged that bullet. But then I think maybe three or four years later, my brother asked me if I want to play a game. And it's the same thing. But because I had seen it before, I was like, oh, like my relationship with my brother was always fractured because he was, you know, he was traumatized from that experience. Plus, you know, um, the spanking and stuff with my dad, plus my dad leaving to the military, plus my dad getting hooked on crack. And then he had to babysit me from like four to maybe six. And I would just run away because he didn't have, you know, the sensibility to be an actual babysitter. And so in the back of my mind, I was like, how come my brother doesn't like me? And so when he introduced that game to me, I was like, oh, this, I guess this game must be like a legit thing. And now my brother actually wants to be my friend. And so then we, we play the game four times and then I'm not sure exactly how it happened, but my subconscious just shut that shit down. And I don't remember, I didn't remember how I felt about it. I didn't really remember. All I remembered is I said, I didn't want to play it anymore. And then life went on. But then once I started doing, um, there's this thing called regression therapy where you can be in a hypnotic state and reaccess, you know, repressed memories. And as those memories were brought back, it was just like this flood of his guilt and betrayal and anger and why, you know, just like all of these thoughts and emotions. And I was like screaming and just to the point where I lost my voice in like one day and it was, just, it was, it was bananas. Oh, but my. My, when I started doing that work, my brother had already passed away in his thirties. So he was 34. And so he wasn't there for me to work through or communicate with or anything like that. And so it was just me processing the memory and re-experiencing the emotions that came up and writing about it. It's like when there's a, uh, a heavy traumatic, uh, traumatic emotional memory, you feel it and your subconscious mm -hmm. complete, like instantly activates fight, flight or freak, the stress response, right? And so it's like 
let me do something to get away from this feeling. The healing process is to say, I'm not going to do something to get away from this feeling. I'm going to feel this feeling in its entirety. And what happens is over time, the energy of the feeling re-regulate and just dissipates. And so it's, it's almost like our body is a battery. And based on the experiences that we create in life, our body will synthesize an emotion. But once that emotion is synthesized, it has to be fully expressed. It has to be given mm -hmm. its time in the conscious, in, in your, your, mm. your consciousness. Otherwise, it gets suppressed into your body and cycles and constantly tries to find its time. And that's why people find it so difficult to just be alone and just be quiet and silent with their self because their body is always trying to purge all of the shit from the past. And you know how they say energy can't be um, destroyed. Created or destroyed. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Only transferred. Only transferred. And so once you create an emotion, it has to be experienced or it'll just cycle through you. And to you know what, that, that makes so much sense. Like everything you've just been saying has just been hitting home because, you know, you think about some of these things and I can use myself as a, a as an example, like talk about romantic relationships, right? You're in the first romantic relationship you're not vulnerable with your partner. You you say, you know what, he or she wouldn't understand what it is you went through, even though most of these cases are more popular than you think. Um, you know, they wouldn't understand. Let me just try to live a surface relationship. But you can't run away from some of these things, you know, some of your anger, some of the way your behavior was formed by that emotion and everything. And, you know, you're, you're just not ready to be in a relationship because there are a lot of emotional things that you haven't addressed that's difficult to give true and pure emotion to your significant other and that relationship crashes and the next relationship you're saying you know what i'm just going to communicate i'm going to i'm just going to communicate and expect the person to understand so this is what happened to me this is why i think i i behave the way i behave i think i need help i don't know how to get the help i'm just asking for your understanding in me processing this and of, of course they'll say oh yeah yeah sure i understand you know we're in this together but again you're still going to behave the same way because you haven't dealt with the emotions but even though you've communicated that doesn't change the fact that you're not behaving the right way you're supposed to behave to a partner that you love and you know that you're not supposed to be doing certain things whether that's you know blocking them off emotionally not being vulnerable with them seeking solace in other people or other things you know things like that what are we supposed to do in that situation like is our whole life just supposed to stop like we still experience romantic relationships are we supposed to face what you know the trauma first and make sure that we're up to a level where we can and then give that true and pure emotion to someone else or do we work through it like because no one knows how long this will take like it's a continuous struggle yeah. right like what yeah. do people do like they want to experience romantic relationships they don't want to be alone however they know that there's something that they need to deal with is it finding the right partner is it you know, is it just enough to communicate? Do you have to deal with a certain level of that bullshit by yourself before you like bring someone into it? Like, what do you suggest? I would say it's a mashup of all of those things because it doesn't make sense to, you know, be alone for four years. Um, but at the same time, this is like, it's a part of the journey. You know what I'm saying? And I personally believe that whether you believe in, you know, God, Allah, you know, all of the all of the different names, whoever your God is or not a God at all. You know, this is the way that we are. This is the way that our biology is programmed. 
And so in order to experience any type of sustainable, you know, peace of mind, sustainable happiness by yourself or with someone else, this work has to be done. And so if you want to be in a relationship, you just have to communicate with the person that these are the things that you're working on and give them the choice to rock with you because they have their shit too. Mm. So, you know? so are you saying that they also have a responsibility to decide to stay in that relationship and help you go through it? Or I don't well, know, is it, is it expecting too much to expect them to understand? Well, you, you know, just have they to have their someone, lives too. You mm -hmm. have to find someone who's on their journey doing their work and understands the dynamic of what you're going through. Because if you... If you if you're doing your work and you find someone who believes that they have no work to do, they're not going to understand you even if you're communicating to them what you're going through because they don't have a, a perceptual awareness of the actual work. You know what I'm saying? And so even if they're the type of person who is self-sacrificing, self and so say you have anger management issues, but you're honest. And you tell the person, you know, these are the things that I'm going through. Every once in a while, I may get triggered and I may lash out and say some things that I really don't mean. And I'm aware of it. I'm in therapy and I'm doing the work, you know, to heal that behavior and change it. But at the same time, I just want you to know that these are the things I'm going through. And then the person that you're with is like, oh, no, I totally understand. And I'm, I'm willing to, you know, be with you while you're going through this stuff. But this but this person isn't doing their own work. And so they, on their end, say their parents were abusive and they grew up having someone yell at them. They grew up having someone hit them. And so in their mind, in their subconscious mind, they equate that behavior with love. And so then they want to stay with you. For the person who's trying to heal their own anger management issues, that relationship isn't healthy. Even though that person almost wants you to lash out on them, it's not healthy because that person isn't aware of the work that they need to, you know, do. And so mm -hmm. they, they don't appreciate. And then so they justify yeah. and validate your anger as you're trying to change the behavior. They want it. That's so interesting. And so sometimes you want to get away from someone, you know, if you're doing the work and you're working towards changing your behavior so you can live a more sustainable and healthy and, you know, and, and happy life. You want to assume the responsibility for curating your tribe and making sure that you're not cultivating a relationship with someone who wants you to stay in that toxic place that you're trying to get out of because it validates their, you know, toxic. You, you know what? You know what? That's so interesting. You mentioned one pivotal part there, like you have to be doing the work. And I think that's where a lot of people miss it. Like it's one thing to lie to your partner that you're not going through anything. It's one thing, another thing to be open with your partner and say, look, I, I have these things I'm dealing with. It's a, it's a third thing to communicate that, but also be doing the work. So yeah. what, what I get from this is that it's not just enough to tell your partner that, hey, you know what? There are some things I'm dealing with. It is what it is. Accept it. Sometimes I have anger issues. It's, it's best to say, you know what? This is what I went through as a kid. This is what I'm currently doing to work on it. And I ask for patience. And this is the journey I'm on. And as he or she uh, continues on that relationship, we, they see how you get better. So now they're part of your story. Yeah. So I guess well, you have to work on it. You have to communicate. You have to work on it. And at the same time, you also have to be with someone who can understand. It's kind of like a coach that's an ex-player. 
like Phil Jackson, like he played in the NBA, he, he understood what it was. So when he's coaching like Michael Jordan, like he understands what it is to be a player. Like when yeah. Jordan comes and says, look, coach, I'm not really feeling it today. Like I'm not just, he, he's been there before. Yeah. So he's not just going to say, look, you're contractually obligated to get on that court. You have to get on that court. He's going to like pull him to the side and like, what happened? Okay, walk me through the last 24 hours. And yeah. him being able to relive those things, I say, okay, this is where you went wrong. This happened to me in 76. This is what you need to do. Take a day break do this, do that, see yep. this person, see that person, then come back and give you your best, that kind yeah. of thing. That's so interesting. You know, life is full of so much noise that sometimes this thing might seem obvious when you hear them, but while living life, you just get caught up in adulting and doing all these things that you don't get to settle down to think about this. And some of these triggers just follow you to the grave without being addressed. And even worse, sometimes passed on to your kids. Exactly. Not sometimes. You know, Every time, every time. And that's the crazy thing is like karma, karma isn't really, if you do something bad, you know, a bad thing will happen to you. What karma is, is the trauma that you don't heal, you will pass it down to your kids from the perspective of not trying to pass it down to your kids. You know, like say you have a father who's like, um, his father was, was, was violent. And so he says, I don't want any violence in my house, right? And so he'll do everything to to keep his children from experiencing violence, yet everything that he does to prevent it from happening creates resentment and anger in the kid because maybe those kids aren't getting the attention that they need. Maybe he put the kids in a program like an after-school program where there's a violent person, you know, in that program. And so everything someone tries to do to prevent them kid to prevent their kids from re or experiencing the things that they experience without first doing the work to heal themselves, they inadvertently reintroduce their kids to those experiences. You know, like for my my parents, my household was loving. Like my mom is like 100% love, like crazy. Like all of the empathy, all of the 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 um self-awareness that I have, all of the caring that I have came from my mother, but she was beat by her father. She was beat by her mother. Discipline, you know, she was beat by her stepfather. And so in her mind, to protect your children in a white environment where you can get arrested by the police, if you, you know, do all of these different bad things, you're going to get a whooping. When you do the bad thing, I'm going to teach you right from wrong by spanking you. And so in her mind, that was a logical approach to teaching discipline and teaching good behavior and teaching right from wrong. And so it wasn't until maybe 20 years after, you know, those childhood experiences, me and my mom, we had, we sat down and we talked about it. And I was like, I remember all of that. And that wasn't okay. Like for me, that was traumatic. Like, and I told her, I broke it down for her. I was like, can you imagine the one person in the world that you believe loves you, cares for you, is the center and the rock of your protection and security taking you into a room, pulling your pants down and whipping you with a belt and then sending you in your room by yourself to ball your eyes out till 12 o'clock in the morning. Can you imagine what I must have felt in that moment being by myself, being afraid of the only person in the galaxy that I feel safe around? And it wasn't until I broke it down in so much detail that she, she started crying. She went into a room and she didn't get it, but she, she got my emotion that I was putting out. But she had to go in her room, close her eyes, and put herself in my shoes as a child to reaccess the memories of herself as a child 
being spanked by her father, being spanked by her mother, and telling herself as a kid, I'll never allow this to happen to me ever again. And so when she reaccessed those memories, she came back to me and started crying. And she was like, oh my God, I'm so sorry. I can't believe I did to you what I said I would never let my parents do to me. Do to me. It's interesting, like she was, like you said, you know, she was sensitive to kind of like receive and not all the time that we get people who can do that. Like some people make the excuse that, boy, your brother was fine. Your sister was fine. Like I had seven kids. Why are you the only one complaining? Like my dad spanked me when I was younger and I turned out okay. Like not agreeing to the fact that, and I say this to say that, you know, I have a brother who's told me the same thing. Like, look, I experienced like half the things you experienced or even more. And I mean, I, I turned out okay. Like why are you manifesting, you know, some of all these so-called, you know, emotions. And I come from an African household, so that's even worse, yeah. you know. Uh, and why are you manifesting it now in your 30s, you know, when you're supposed to be getting to shit, you know, mm -hmm. not knowing that I'm just hanging by a thread and, you know, everything I'm doing. And even even me, you know, being uh, intelligent in school and everything, that was all just seeking an escape and using, focusing on my books or using exactly. education. Like, it almost feels like I'm screaming and no one is yeah. hearing me, you know, that kind of thing. But it's interesting to to get this perspective from you and I'm really appreciate you know really talking to you today and I I probably will make that dedication to really sink deep and see how I can do the work yeah use some resources therapy is always somewhat expensive but maybe I need a little bit of that maybe a few sessions yeah. and see where I can go from there oh, let me end the interview like this I know we're supposed to oh, sorry real quick just because it's on the topic of, of my mom um it took us six years to get to that point so it wasn't just I broke it down or every time I brought it up, she would always say, why do you always bring that up? That is, it's in the past. Why do you always bring that up? Did you have a normal relationship during that six years yeah, yeah. or you were kind we're of like, like best friends? Oh, it's, oh, yeah. okay. Me and my mom, we're like best friends. But whenever it came down to uh, parenting, we would always butt heads because I always had an opinion. When I was, when I was 12, no, 10, when I was 10 years old, one of the last times she spanked me, I stopped and I was like, oh, at the end, I was crying and I stopped crying and I looked her in the eyes and I was like, why can't you just talk to me? And she always brings that up because she, yeah. And I was just like, why can't you just talk to me? But that came from, I was um, a conflict manager in the third grade. And so I was helping people, you know, um, work through their conflicts, helping different people work through their conflicts. And so I've always had this understanding of, um, you know, mindfully listening, you know, actively listening and listening to someone else's perspective and learning from two people, learning from each other's perspectives so they can come to a resolution of whatever conflict that they're going through. And so I'm getting spanked. And I, you know, just when you're put through that much pain, you're not learning anything. And so I was just like, why can't you just talk to me rather than hitting me? And so long story short, it took us years to get to the point where she could access her memories of going through the same thing. And then we found a resolution and now we can talk about it. And she doesn't justify her behavior or defend herself because she remembers now that she wouldn't have you know, wanted to have had to go through that experience for herself. You know what? That's interesting. And I want our listeners to be very, very careful. You know, a nine uses uh, uh, spanking as his own um, trigger, you know, but it can be different for different yeah. people. 
right? Yeah. So it doesn't have to be spanking. So like I said, you know, you have seven kids and you're pointing out that I spanked all my kids, like five of them turned out okay, why you? You know, that kind of thing. It can be something else and spanking is the obvious thing, but sometimes it's things that you don't immediately even pick on. You don't immediately recognize. It can just be your, your dad telling you you're stupid for 20 years, yeah. you know, that kind of thing. And those are very little cues that it's that are difficult to like pick up on. But I want to appreciate you, man. I know we're supposed to talk about Burning Man. I'll definitely <laughs> like have you back on the podcast. But this was yeah. a very insightful conversation. Let me end with this. Like you, from interacting with you for, you know, a brief uh, hour or hour and a half, you, you seem to be someone who's not only in tune with their emotion, like mentally and stuff, but also like spiritually. Like that's another level. There's a difference between the mental and the spiritual, right? So like, do you have to become that spiritual to be that in touch with your emotion and to be able to address mental issues? Do you require some level of spirituality or you can just keep it to like science and some of these processes and see that, oh, look at how do I deal with some of these things? Or you think like spirituality also goes a long way, you know, well, to, to I, helping out with some of these issues? I would say the most important thing for everybody to know is everything is spiritual. Science is spiritual. Everything. Education is spiritual. It's like we don't know what we are. You know what I'm saying? And when I say spirituality, I'm sorry to cut you short. Like, I'm very also particular about religion. You Mm -hmm. know, spirituality is different from religion, but religion is also the cause of a lot of trauma from people. A lot of people, you know, can pinpoint their trauma to, you know, practices in their religion when they were much Mm -hmm. younger. And that's why I try to, like, say, okay, how much of this do you need kind of thing? But as you were saying, sorry to cut you short. I would say that spirituality is turning within to understand our psychology, to understand our biology, and to understand our our exi- our relationship with existence. Because theoretically, or based on knowledge, we don't really know what we are. We say that we're human, but that's just a concept and a theory that we just run with. Like everyone agrees with it. And so that is the perceptual reality. We're human beings, but actually we're nature. Nature is doing us and we don't really understand our relationship with nature because, you know, if you look at um, capitalism and industry, we're destroying it. But as we destroy that, we destroy ourselves. You know, it's like, I'm going to create this automobile so I can get get around the world faster. But at the same time, that automobile pollutes the air that I need to breathe. And so in this, in the sense, I don't really understand what I am because the things that I create also make me sick. And so my perspective of spirituality is doing the work to understand my psychology, understand my biology, because if I understand my psychology, I can heal my mind. If I understand my biology, I can heal my body. And if I understand both, I can create a balance, which gives me access to, you know, and this is like, I guess you could say the next level, which gives me access to more information relating to our existence. Because the more we connect with, uh, I guess you could say, the more we connect to nature, we learn that the way a plant can heal itself, our bodies can heal itself. But the relationship between the mind and the body, if it's fractured, 
the mind can make the body sick, like with trauma. Mm. And mm. what trauma is, and I think it's important for people to know that, like, leave with understanding this. If I, if you were to get into a car accident and smash your head against the dashboard, all of that sound and all of the pain, if you were to be knocked out as it's happening, that is an instant traumatic experience because your body created an emotional experience, a heightened, overwhelming emotional experience that didn't get the opportunity to be fully expressed. And so then it's recorded in your, in your body. It's stored in your body and it's constantly trying to make its way out into your conscious mind so it can um i guess you could say dissipate because once like all healing really is is you experiencing what needed to be experienced and then it transmutes or the energy transforms back into spiritual energy and that spiritual energy is the energy that we use to have a life experience and so you get into that accident everything shuts down, all of the sensual information of that accident is still inside of you. But it's painful, it's scary, it's overwhelming. And so you run from it. There's certain people who've been in, you know, uh, traumatic accidents who don't want to drive anymore because the driving triggers those emotions, those those experiences, and they don't want to re-experience those. And so then they spend the entirety of their life avoiding driving and just coming up with all these different ways, like maybe taking the train, but then if the train, you know, has a sound or a noise or a feeling or a vibration that re-triggers those, and they don't they don't take the train, they don't drive, you mm -hmm. know. And so healing is understanding the mental, the biological, um, and how it all comes together. And I guess the spiritual journey is just creating a sense of self around all of that and understanding that it's the same thing with a plant. You know, plants have stored memories and traumatic experiences, you know, at this, uh, as well. If you cut a tree, the tree will create a scar around wherever you, you know, chopped it or whatever. And that's a memory. You know, that's a memory of pain. Plants feel pain too. Animals feel pain too. If you beat a dog, you know what I'm saying? You keep it chained up and you're a male, that dog will have a traumatic a response to men. And so all animals experience, you know, certain levels of the same thing that we experience. And so for me, spirituality is just understanding, you know, the totality of all of that, along with the energetics of it. You know, they say like vibration and vibes and stuff like that. It's all, all sensory information is vibration. You know, sound is vibration, vision is vibration. And so to me, that total experience, understanding the journey to understanding that total experience, whether you use science, whether you use Eastern philosophy, whether you use Western, you know, um, uh, I guess Western philosophy, all of it is the spiritual journey. And there's a thousand different roads to the same spot. And to me, we're all working towards a certain level of enlightenment. And all enlightenment really is, is that is the totality of that understanding where you balance your mind and your body. And the body is, you could say, your subconscious mind. And so when it's all balanced, you know, your healing is um, happens effortlessly. Your ability to think. Have you seen the movie uh, Limitless with Bradley Cooper? There's this thing called superconsciousness. And with superconsciousness, it's almost like the things that you're interested in, you know, become effortlessly and easy and easy. For instance, us having this I mean, humans use only nine percent of your brain, yeah, right? Yeah. And for mm -hmm. me, the example that I use 
is having conversations like this. I didn't take notes, you know what I'm saying? But if I were to try, if I were to try to do this right and I were to try to be right and say everything right, I wouldn't, I would forget, you know, I, I, or I would have a difficult time accessing information because my need to be right or to communicate good creates a block because it creates a fear that I won't. And so being in flow allows me to communicate effortlessly, communicate easily, you know, be confident in knowing that I know what I need to know to communicate or to come off the way that I want to come off, you know, in this conversation. I mean, because if you think about it, we talked about something completely off topic, but I feel like I've represented myself authentically in the moment with a clear stream of consciousness. Like I didn't have to stop to really, I didn't really have to stop to think about what is the best thing to tell, you know, to tell you, it just all came together. And I believe that this is the conversation that we were meant to have rather than us talking about Burning Man, which can be done at any, you know, any other time. This is the conversation that we were meant to have because based off of the way that we started, this is the direction that it went. And maybe you needed to hear it, or maybe someone who's listening or who will watch, you know, in the future who follows you will hear maybe just one thing that I said that is the answer to the question that they ask, you know, a higher power, God, or, or their guides, or however they want to see it. And the answers are there. And so I just believe that we're all connected. And the journey is coming into your into a total existential understanding of how you exist and how we all exist with nature, animals, plants, everything is connected and everything is balanced. We might perceive ourselves living in a chaotic time right now, but how chaotic is it really? You know what I'm saying? It's like, if you think about the racial disparity in the United States, um, classism and whatnot, it seems chaotic, but at the same time, everyone is where they're supposed to be based off of the way that it's designed. And no one really, like the, the societies, like everyone who lives in the ghetto stays in the ghetto and they find a sustainable way of living. It may not be healthy. It may not be the most positive, but it's sustainable. And it's been like that for the past three decades. Everyone who's in, you know, the upper class society, the middle class, those societies are sustained. Same thing in Africa. You know, apartheid is over, but the, the divisions are still there and they're stable. And so the world really isn't as chaotic as we imagine it to, to be based off of all the injustices and the wars and whatnot. Because if it were true chaos, everyone who's, you know, at, at the bottom would be cutting over that line and, you know, everything would just be, you know, mixed in together. This person be stealing this person's stuff, this person be stealing this person's stuff. And then when you look at it, there's no order, but there's order. There's, 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 I believe that there's an abundance of order. And in some, I don't know, roundabout type of way, we were all born to learn from these experiences. Mm. And when you, no, oh, go ahead. Go ahead. No, you're, you're totally no, no, like, I'm, I'm rambling at this point. So <laughs> I was just kind of like soaking everything you said in. And like you said, you know, this wasn't the original conversation we're supposed to have. Uh, we're supposed to kind of like talk about Burning Man, which we'll definitely do on the second episode. But man, like, I can't remember the last time I spent almost two hours in an interview and I was just like not ready to stop. Like, but unfortunately, we do have to bring the episode to an end at this yeah. point. Ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Nine Johnson, mental health advocate, spiritual life counselor, performance anxiety coach i mean just listening through the interview i'm sure you know this 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 man has the goods how can they reach out to you if 
people want to like, you know, consult you on certain issues or just like uh, big you up for, you know, what they learned from this interview or anything? Are you on social media? Do you have a website? Email, um, like tell the people how to reach I'm out. I'm on social media. I'm on Instagram at, um, what's my Instagram? At nine, N-I-N-E <laughs> underscore, underscore Johnson. Um, and I also have another one on Instagram, which is love fear 9.0. Um, yeah. And you can, you can, uh, DM me on either of those two and yeah. Yeah. And, uh, as always culture class podcast everywhere as well. It's, uh, you know, culture class podcast.com is the website. You can actually go on the website and drop us an audio note and we can, you know, play your question or your shout out or whatever on the episode and have a response to it. If you have a response to this episode, I encourage you to do that on culture class podcast.com and follow us on all social media. Appreciate you guys for listening to this episode. And until next time, be well.